This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we will look back 40 years to the infamous October crisis in Quebec and its critical place in the history of Canada. We will hear from researcher David Hugel on mainstream media reporting on the disappearances of women in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And finally, we will hear from Sana Miranda Leal about last Thanksgiving weekend's Migrant Workers March in Southern Ontario. And here are your alert headlines. Rights Action has called on the president of Simon Fraser University, Andrew Petter, to say no to a recent $10 million gift from Goldcorp, a mining company that heavily operates in countries such as Honduras and Guatemala. While $5 million is destined for the university's capital campaign, the other $5 million will be used to support community programs in Vancouver's downtown east side, what Rights Action calls a form of goldwashing, a legacy of environmental and health harms and other human rights violations, including deaths at Gulp Corp operated mines in Guatemala and Honduras. The letter sent to Petter asks him to consider the company's unethical practices and demands an explanation if the gift is accepted. The Toronto Community Mobilization Network has called for public demonstrations across the country this week to protest the Crown's attempt to revoke the bail of Alex Hundert, a G20 defendant, and keep him behind bars. Last week, Hundert was found to be in breach of his bail condition that stipulated no participation in demonstrations when he spoke as a panelist at two university events in September. The court believes that because a panel discussion is similar to an organized meeting and therefore akin to a demonstration, Hundert has violated conditions of his bail. The activist was initially arrested on June 26th before the protests began. Many other G20 defendants remain behind bars. The National Roundtable on the Environment and the Economy recently released a national education initiative called Climate Prosperity, which attempts to find the silver lining in our propensity for destroying the planet. More golf days is listed among the benefits. Climate scientist and University of Toronto professor Danny Harvey argues the interactive diagram included in the report Degrees of Change is full of bad science and needs to be redrawn, especially regarding the rate at which Arctic summer ice is melting. The chart and the entire report was sponsored by Suncor Energy. The resistance at Grassy Narrows continues. Over the past six weeks, women of the community have blocked enforcement officers from the Ministry of Natural Resources from entering and interfering with backroad repair being done by members of the Northwestern Ontario First Nations community. Clan mothers of Grassy Narrows maintain that the attempt to stop maintenance of the roads is an attack on our community's self-sufficiency. 
It is another attempt by the province to assert unilateral control over our territory in violation of our status as a treaty partner. The backroads are used by the community to hunt and trap and for wild rice and berry picking. Most of the Mapuche prisoners involved in the 82-day hunger strike ended their protest last week when the Chilean government agreed to institute reforms aimed at modifying the anti-terrorist law that are being applied to their cases. Natividad Lanquileo, a spokeswoman for the protesters, said, This strike is just one more act in the Mapuche's process of reconstruction and that they should be considered social activists, not prisoners. Some of the prisoners have said they will continue the protest. The Mapuche are Chile's largest indigenous community. Abdul Razak Aljanko, a former Guantanamo captive freed by a federal judge, has filed a lawsuit against the U.S. government. During his time in Guantanamo, Janko claims U.S. soldiers urinated on him, that he was subjected to solitary confinement and sleep deprivation, and was beaten. As a result, on 17 separate occasions, he attempted suicide. Armed with his successful habeas corpus petition that saw him released from Guantanamo, Janko is suing for medical expenses for his physical and psychological damages. While the settlement paid by the Canadian government to Mahir Arar may provide precedent, the U.S. has not acknowledged mistreatment of detainees at Guantanamo. Twelve police officers are currently being investigated for involvement in the attempted coup in Ecuador on September 30th. Among those being investigated is former President and Army Colonel Lucio Gutierrez, who has stated, There was no attempted coup. It's a farce. It was all a media show by President Rafael Correa. It is believed that a recent law affecting police officers' bonuses and job benefits helped ignite the rebellion. While Secretary of State Hillary Clinton expressed full support for the elected Ecuadorian president, ties between the FBI, the CIA, and other U.S. agencies and the Ecuador police force have led many to suspect U.S. involvement or support for the attempted coup. According to newly released statistics, the wealthiest 1% of Americans now pocket nearly one quarter of the country's income and control as much as half the total wealth, including investments, bank accounts, and property. Their share of the pie has roughly doubled in the past four decades, since the neoliberal regimes that began under President Clinton. In Canada, the trend toward greater concentration of wealth at the top is identical. Between the mid-1990s and 2005, income inequality grew faster in Canada than in all but one of 17 leading developed countries, according to the Conference Board of Canada's 2010 performance report. Those were the alert headlines for the week of October 14, 2010. And now for Around the Left in Seven Days. Professor Francis Fox Piven of the Cooney Graduate Center will be speaking at the University of Toronto on October 15th at 1.30 p.m. She is the former president of the American Sociological Association and former vice president of the American Political Science Association. On the 15th, she will deliver a lecture entitled How Labor is Part of the Problem in Building the Left. The fifth assembly and one-year anniversary of the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly will be held on October 16th at 9 o'clock a.m. at the Steelworkers Hall in Toronto. All members and supportive observers are welcome, and registration is mandatory. To register or to get more info, email workingclassfightback at gmail.com.
on October 17th at the English Bay Beach in Vancouver, join your fellow environmentalists in a beach dance party send-off for the No Tanks Flotilla. This celebration of our coast will send a clear message to the provincial and federal government that B.C. residents don't want oil tankers in our waters. Come enjoy music, food, festivities, and good friends, and join us in saying, No Tanks, Save B.C. Waters from Crude Oil Tankers. Meet at the beach at noon. For more information, go to notanks.org. Pedro Cayuqueo is a journalist and member of Chile's largest indigenous community, the Mapuches. He will be speaking in Winnipeg on October 18th at Circle of Life Thunderbird House on Main Street. His talk will focus on the violations of the Mapuches people, their trials in military courts, the destruction of their land, the exploitation by the state and mining and forestry companies, and their campaigns of resistance. The talk will begin at 5 o'clock p.m. The Work and Learning Network, in partnership with the Prairie Metropolis Centre, is sponsoring a symposium on the rise of temporary foreign workers in Manitoba and Alberta. This symposium will provide a forum for discussion amongst policymakers, employers, unions, academics, immigrant serving agencies, and others about the complex issues arising from the temporary foreign workers program. The symposium will be held in the Stanley Milner Public Library in Edmonton on October 19th from 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. To register, go to tfw.eventbrite.com. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East are pleased to announce a five-city speaking tour with American scholar Norman Finkelstein from October 26th to 30th. Finkelstein's academic research has concentrated on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and its representation in political discourse. He has devoted much of his adult life to the achievement of a just peace between Israel and Palestine. Tour stops will include Montreal on October 26th, Ottawa on the 27th, Toronto on the 28th, Edmonton on the 29th, and Vancouver on the 30th. In all cities, Dr. Finkelstein will deliver a lecture entitled Israel and Palestine, Past, Present, and Future. Visit cjpme.org for more info. And that has been Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of October 14th, 2010. This is the 40th anniversary of what is commonly called the October Crisis when members of the FLQ, the Front de Libération du Québec, kidnapped British Trade Commissioner James Cross and Quebec's Minister of Labour, Pierre Laporte. Laporte was murdered and Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau brought down the War Measures Act, suspending civil liberties in Canada, and sent in the Canadian Army to man the streets of Montreal. All told, some 500 Quebecers were arrested, all of them left-wing activists, and very few of them involved in the FLQ action. We have on the line, from his office in Ottawa, Pierre Bourdet, professor of sociology and head of the International Development and Globalization Program at the University of Ottawa. Pierre co-founded Montreal-based Alternative, and served as its chief executive officer between 1994 and 2005. So welcome to Alert, Pierre. Thank you. Now, could you maybe just give us a little bit of background uh, about the events uh, that uh, led to the October crisis? Sure. Well, I was one of the 500 
arrested and uh, <coughs> who had the opportunity to spend a few weeks in jail thinking about all these matters. And uh, so um, it was an important event. Uh, I think uh, most people, just as you said, will remember the uh, crisis by the kidnappings and the occupation of the army and all of that, which was, of course, uh, very important. But <clears throat> I think that there has to be uh, some sort of explanation at a broader level, uh, because on the one hand, the uh, FLQ uh, events or uh, actions of October 1970 did not come out of a bottle um, did not uh, occur by miracle or by magic. There was a process in the 1960s where the idea of a revolutionary, uh, very radical kind of uh, action was um, had a place in Quebec. Uh, there were a few hundred people who participated, actually, in the actions, not necessarily in October 1970, but throughout the decade. And moreover... There were lots of people, thousands of people, actually young people, most of them, like myself, who were relatively sympathetic to the uh, goals of the FLQ, even if we were critical of the the methods. I think uh, kidnapping people and, more importantly, killing people were not very popular. But the goals of achieving some sort of liberation and some sort of uh, radical rupture with the Canadian state, these goals were widely popular. So when the FLQ moved in October 1970, and when their famous manifesto was read over national television, it was uh, there was a quite high level of uh, sympathy. And that sympathy wind down after a while because of the... Uh, murder of the minister and other events. But it's important to remember that uh, the FLQ and its actions were not uh, some sort of, uh, you know, in the stratosphere. They were part of the reality of the time where there were lots of people, lots of young people, and many social movements that were radically pursuing an objective of liberation. And so, therefore, these actions occur in that context and it explains why and to what extent it was uh, so important in our history. Now, you, given that context, I imagine the atmosphere within Quebec, within Montreal, uh, where the Canadian army, the Canadian army, marched through the streets of Montreal, would have been uh, very different feelings there than what uh, other onlookers from outside the province would be uh, witnessing, For no? Sure. No, there was a mix of feelings. Uh, there was a lot of fear because a lot of people started to to think that there was a, something very grave, very dangerous happening. Now, we know 40 years later that it was not the case, and we know that the police, especially the federal RCMP, were very much in control, and there was no risk of uh, any kind of big... Uh, uprising or anything like that. But to see thousands of soldiers in the street made a lot of people afraid. Other folks said uh, this is not acceptable. And very rapidly, maybe two weeks, three weeks after the occupation and the proclamation of the War Measures Act, there were many demonstrations. I think there, at some point there was a daily demonstration with thousands of people participating. At my university at that time, we had a general strike to protest 
the uh, War Measures Act. And so there was a general sense in the Quebec society that this was either overblown, this was an excuse to uh, repress other kind of political activities. Bear in mind that, uh, well, you just said it earlier, that out of the 500 people arrested, maybe a handful had anything to do with the uh, kidnapping and whatnot. All the rest were actually social activists in the trade unions, in the student movement, and at that time also in the Parti Québécois, which was in 1970 a sort of, uh, you know, left of center uh, political project. And so a lot of, most of the 500 people were arrested from these circles. And so we thought that the agenda of the Trudeau government is not so much to crush the FLQ, but to discipline, control, and terrorize Quebec society and any forces, any political project or social project that was, um, you know, fighting for emancipation or social progress. Now, follow up on that a little bit, uh, Pierre. I mean, take us from that point in 1970 with, uh, you know, the, the, the invocation of the War Measures Act and the, the arrests. How, how did this uh, affect the uh, the development of the politics within Quebec? We saw the uh, the rise of the Parti Québécois. Is there a, a direct link there? The ruling class in Canada and the Trudeau government thought that they would uh, teach Quebec a lesson. In fact, what happened was the opposite. Instead of uh, maybe, maybe making people afraid, which was probably the case for the few first weeks or days. It was like an electroshock. And after the events, after the kidnapping, after the uh, release of uh, Cross, after the arrest of the FLQ, after all of this, the dust, the, the dust settled and social movements sort of... Um, gain new strength, new legitimacy, and new capacity. Uh, not even two years after the uh, October crisis, there was a general strike of uh, something like 300,000 workers in the spring of 1972 that went on strike uh, on a political platform of many, many social demands and trade union demands. The student movement uh, was uh, energized, in fact, by the repression. Other sectors, the women's uh, movement and women's struggle, uh, also took a giant leap in terms of their influence. And, and, and. And, of course, in 1973, just three years after the crisis, there was a, an election, the second election in which the PQ participated. And they jumped from 22 to 30% of the popular vote. Three years later, in 1976, they were elected. So what does it mean? It means that after the uh, October crisis of 1970, the Quebec society went into a mood of organization and social change and political change. It was the opposite of what the federal government had hoped for. Mm. Now... Um so we're we're looking at uh, a forty-year perspective now, and uh, I'm reminded of the events, uh, the the G20 in Toronto, where again civil liberties were undermined, uh, supposedly in the name of of security. 
uh, I, I'm wondering if you can maybe tie in uh, or, or see connections between what happened uh, in Montreal 40 years ago and uh, you know some of the uh, the characteristics of the recent G20 uh, uh, right. promise, protest. Well, uh, you know, it's different times, but there might be a common uh, sort of base or characteristic. Of course, the state, which represents the different uh, factions of the ruling classes, always want to uh, find a better way to crush people's movement. So one of the best ways, the good old tactic, is to uh, terrorize and make people afraid and criminalize dissent and criminalize social movements and make them appear as if they were committing a crime. When uh, students and workers were striking in 1970, it was not... Uh, any in any way directly related to the FLQ, but the government at that time uh, made that association. And uh, a, a detail, but an important detail, there was a municipal election in 1970 in Montreal, and there was a coalition of uh, trade union and community organization that had a good chance, maybe not to, be, uh, to win the city, but to have a major influence. It was called FRAP. Everyone has forgotten about that. But the mayor of, the Mon of Montreal at that time, which was a reactionary allied of the federal government, said, aha, if you vote for FRAP, you're voting for the FLQ. So that kind of amalgamation and criminalization of dissent is a good old tactic. I suppose we saw something like that in Toronto. Mm. And I yeah. see now that they are sort of... Um, abolishing the court proceedings because they don't have any evidence uh, against anyone, so it was just a big scam. The difference is that uh, in 1970, as I tried to explain, it was a movement uh, with depth and scope. It didn't start in 1970, it started in the 60s, and it went on for 20 years, more or less. So I'm not sure if that is the case with the demonstration in Toronto, although I understand that a lot of young people are very much angry now. So we will see uh, what they will do next. Yeah, and, and just quickly, I know that uh, like with regard to the, the, the militantism uh, that uh, the FLQ represented, uh, could you see uh, like a, a similar militantism around the, uh, the, the black bloc? Uh, do you, can you well, make again, that connection? I think we have to um, sort of... Uh, be aware of the nuances and uh, the FLQ, um, they dreamed of setting up a sort of guerrilla warfare. They had their inspiration from uh, Uruguay and Algeria and Vietnam and whatnot. They never fulfilled that dream, but they operated on the principle that they would have an armed revolution at some point. It was, that's my judgment, it was completely crazy and had nowhere to, to go. So I don't think the black bloc is in that same uh, mood, although I would say that some of the hard uh, anarchistic thinking uh, might you know, uh, function with similar principles that you have to uh, affect or weaken the state by symbolic action, and not by mass organization, but by symbolic action that will wake up the people. So 40 years ago, the FLQ thought they would wake up the people by putting bombs and other crazy things. It was wrong. Okay. It didn't work. Well, uh, the black bloc think that they will wake up the people by smashing the windows of Starbucks. 
and McDonald's. I think it's a bit, uh, it's a bit short. Okay. Well, on that note, I would like to very much thank you for joining us, uh, Pierre Bourdet. Thank and, you to you. Okay. Bye. Pierre Bourdet speaking to us from his office at the University of Ottawa. Well, uh, welcome to Alert Radio, and I'm speaking with David Hugel. David has uh, just come out with a, a study on the, the uh, media reporting on the disappearances of several women in from the downtown east side. And uh, so, David, could you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the the methodology of your uh, research, you know, how you went about getting that information, and uh, you maybe compare it with you know what the the newspapers are telling us? Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's been a number of studies that have looked at the way the story has been told to audiences in Vancouver. Um, but my, my project looked specifically at newspapers um, that were telling this story to an un, uninitiated audience, so specifically national newspapers, to audiences that might not be familiar with the, um, with the situation in, in the downtown east side. Um, and May I ask what's led you to uh, take on that project? Well, I've uh, I, I've long been interested in the way that sex work is um, is governed in Canada. Is, is uh, and I did I did some research work um, for people who were doing advocacy um, uh, uh, for a parliamentary committee that was looking at the at the, 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 the sex work laws in Canada, which of course are extremely retrograde, and I'm happy to talk about that if you'd like me to. Um, uh, and so that, that's, that's how I ended up here. Uh, and then of course the, um, the, you know, the, the, the Picton trial was such a monumental Canadian event, you know, in some of the, the larger newspapers, especially the Globe and Mail, uh, at high points of the trial, we were talking about, uh, you know, eight or 10 pages of, of coverage. So it's really, um, you know, it was hardly just a matter of reporting the developments of, of the trial, right? It was much more, um, there's a lot of analysis about the situation in the downtown east side. And I think, uh, you know, really problematic uh, analysis. So I was interested to to do a study that, that, uh, that looked at those questions um, in ways that haven't necessarily been been looked at before specifically i'm interested in the way that uh the media coverage has absolved the state of uh of any responsibility uh, for for what happened could you give us a couple of specific examples of what you're talking about yeah well i mean as as your audience is probably well aware um you know british columbia is one of the places where um where the, you know, a sort of hard right restructuring of the state has, has happened most aggressively. Um, possibly the only sort of comparable scenario would be the common sense revolution in, in, in Ontario, Mike Harris's so-called common sense revolution in, in Ontario. Um, and so, I mean, I think that, I think what happened in the downtown east side, and, I, you know, to be clear, what we're talking about is, you know, upwards of or nearly 70 women disappearing over a period of, uh, roughly two decades. Um, a lot of that is related to um, to a situation where it, um, the state has made it a lot more difficult to be poor, um, and things like um, things like the fact that we haven't had a federal housing program in a generation in this country, uh, total inadequacy of, of detox facilities, um, 
unaccountable uh, and uh, and 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 dangerous policing. Uh, these these sort of these sort of things have really really come home to roost in in the downtown east side. Um, and I think that looking at the looking at what's happened with the Picton trial. Or sorry, with the situation there, uh, not specifically the Picton episode, but the the missing and murdered women more generally. Um, if you take the the state's responsibility out of that analysis, uh, it becomes very hollow. I think. So um, now, with, with the media reporting, like how, how does that, uh, I guess, play into uh, what you're talking about in terms of like what was they say, say something that should have been in the media that but that wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I think the story that the media told um, was one that coupled a couple, or the one that one that brought together a couple of, of narratives, um, none of which are independently untrue. I think um, so. For example, one was a, one was a narrative of police negligence, uh, which is, of course is, is very real. Um, another one is a narrative of um, you know sort of damaged individuals. So these you know the kinds of things that we're reading about uh, about. Uh, you know, sex workers in the downtown east side are always, it's, uh, we're always told this kind of personal tragedy narrative. So, you know, um, these women often came from abusive homes, abusive families, uh, terrible sort of uh, domestic situations and so on. Um, which, of course, is, 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 I think, you know, there's no reason to believe that's not true. I'm sure that is, is many, many, of, uh, many of the women who ended up in the most vulnerable positions do come from these kinds of histories. Uh, but independently, I think that um, these and other narratives really work to privatize um, and individualize what I think is a, is a public crisis. It's a crisis of, um, of a state that uh, is knowingly and willingly uh, allowing f- for certain kinds of uh, marginality and vulnerability uh, that in a lot of ways could be dealt with. And I, and I think that, uh, that this sort of what happens when we get these narratives, these, these limited narratives, um, is that it becomes possible to understand uh, this crisis as, you know, a kind of confluence of bad luck or a, or a series of contingencies rather than the direct product of, of structural forms of violence. So, uh, for example, um, I guess racism... Uh, was the the local media maybe more attentive to that uh, or less attentive than the national media? Well, I think what's really striking about um, I mean, I don't I don't know too much about what happened. You're talking locally. about a high indigenous population there. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I think what happened um, with the national coverage, especially the, the kind of narratives that we read in the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, which of course is not a national paper but is by far the most read newspaper in Canada. Um, I think I think what we had happened was this kind of um, this deracing or this um, or this uh, this unwillingness to talk about uh, to talk about the fact that a disproportionate number of these women who disappeared were Aboriginal um, and and what that might mean you know what what why is it that in a in a city that has a very small Aboriginal population relative to the rest of the population so many they're so vastly disproportionately uh, overrepresented in this um, in in this particular scenario and I think that that was a really those are questions that the Canadian media were not willing to ask and I think to all of our detriment now, uh, there's certain sorts of institutional problems that, uh, that we face with the, these media. Uh, 
I, I, I suppose where, where journalists are concerned, uh, there would be a certain disincentive to want to maybe, say, rub the police the wrong way and then because or they're looking for information or whatever and they, they you know, don't want to alienate a source or what have you. Uh, is, I guess I'm just wondering to what extent these uh, distorted media reporting is a product of certain institutions or, or whether it's a product of just uh, willful blindness. Uh, do you have any insights into that? Well, I think that, I mean, there's two things. First of all, in terms of the police, I think that what's interesting about the um, about the coverage is actually there is a really strong willingness to interrogate the police. I mean, this especially in the early coverage, as Picton became more of the story, that narrative kind of faded. But early on, you know, there was, I think, there, I think that journalists sort of were able to sniff that there was something amiss with the police. And that, that is very much a part of the story. But my view is that if we stop there... Um, then we miss we miss a lot. I mean, it's it's it is a matter of, of bad policing, of unaccountable policing, of negligent policing. But it's also a matter of a, of a huge range of, uh, of 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 forms of state negligence. Um, in terms of the uh, in terms of the media more generally, I mean, I think the biggest crisis in Canada that we face with media um, is that we are now talking about generally or more or less three corporations. Um, who are controlling a huge, a, a huge portion of our media escapes? Places like I'm not sure if this is still true, but as recently as a year ago, uh, places like Regina, uh, in, the, in, in the English language in, in Montreal and, and other places, we're talking about a hundred percent saturation uh, in terms of Asper paper. So every piece of daily news owned by by Canwest. Um, and I think that's really significant, not only politically. I'm not just talking about intervention, but just in terms of a simple. Um, dearth of diversity um and so i think we were we one of the one of the core problems is that we were told uh very you know a very limited number of stories from a very limited number of people shared throughout you know a whole range of of uh of parts of these these corporate empires well i want to thank you for uh sharing your insights with us and uh you and your uh, also your talk here at the book fair thanks very much for having me thank you I'm speaking to David Hugel at the site of the Winnipeg Radical Book Fair. Now joining us is uh, Sana Miranda Leal. She is uh, one of the organizers for the Justice for Migrant Workers March, which took place uh, over the Thanksgiving Day weekend. So uh, thank you for joining us, Sana. Thank you for having me. Okay, could you just uh, maybe uh, fill us in a little bit on what the purpose of this uh, Migrant Workers March was and, and what you were hoping to accomplish with it? The purpose uh, was to have it on Thanksgiving to remind people that a lot of the food that, they were, that we are having for dinner on Thanksgiving was probably grown, harvested, even packed and processed by migrant workers in Canada. And uh, that we should be... First of all, thanking those people for our dinner, but also being aware of the conditions that these workers face. Mm-hmm. And uh, could you detail that? Uh, like, what uh, what are those conditions that uh, you think people should be more aware of? So, one of the issues that workers brought up during the march was recruitment and agent fees. Sometimes workers have to pay up to. Uh, $20,000 in fees to come to Canada with the promise of a job, a well-paying job in a healthy, in a healthy workplace. And uh, sadly, that's not what they find here. And uh, sometimes they 
where very often they end up working for years to try and pay that off. But there's also many health and safety concerns in farm work and in factory work. Uh, a lot of workers don't get proper training or equipment or any at all to work in dangerous conditions. And um, status, immigration status is a big problem as well because even though they come with a work permit, their status is very precarious. They can be sent home at any moment, and so people are not confident standing up for their rights if there's any problems in the workplace, or they might even be sent home uh, for getting injured. Now, uh, as I, um, I, I see that the march was from Leamington to Windsor, uh, is there anything specific uh, about, those, uh, about that route that uh, would be uh, attractive to, uh, to your organization? So um, this, this march was co-organized by Justicia for Migrant Workers and by migrant workers that live in Leamington and in the Leamington area. And they decided that they wanted to go to the closest, I guess, city and where a lot of immigration offices are and a lot of, um, I guess, government is, so that, and where a lot of people, people live in that area, so that they would bring the most attention. So that's why we went from Leamington to, to Windsor. And on the way, we stopped in a couple of uh, farms that are known to be bad employers and uh, held a little rally there. Mm-hmm. Who, may I ask, who are these, uh, in particular, are these migrant workers? Is there uh, any particular region of the world that they, de- that they tend to be more drawn from? So uh, there's migrant workers in Canada working from um, Thailand, the Philippines, Mexico, Guatemala, um, the Caribbean, so anywhere from Jamaica, St. Lucia, Trinidad, there's people from all over, and people organizing this march uh, were from all those regions. We had people come from uh, from several areas in Canada and who originally came from other places in the world. And uh, you had these migrant uh, workers on the march. Was uh, there anyone else uh, of note who, who, who marched along? Uh, the Windsor Workers Action Center came with us. A lot of uh, there was a lot of local support. Um, the Marxist Leninist Party Club supported as well. They came out. Uh, Migrante Youth came out, um, and a lot of people came just as individuals to participate, even though they're part of other organizations. Okay, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, the temporary foreign uh, workers uh, legislation and uh, maybe how that uh, has contributed to the uh, the exploitive uh, uh, or the exploitation of these workers? So, um, as I said before, one of the main problems is that employers have the right and uh, the. the I guess, the flexibility to to send workers back whenever they want. And that alone prevents many, many people from standing up for their rights. Um, But also these programs uh, are set up so that people can only come for a certain amount of time and not ever gain permanent status in Canada. So that that alone, you know, prevents people from from exercising the rights that that a Canadian resident could. And uh, we think that's a big problem. We think that's something that needs to be changed. And in the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program, uh, which is where uh, many of these workers were from as well, uh, there's all sorts of other problems related to housing and, and health and safety and uh, the lack of enforcement 
is, is a big problem as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, uh, the extent to which these migrant workers are vulnerable to exploitation, has that had, that had an impact on workers in the country that, do, that are not uh, from abroad? Uh, workers in the country. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I should say people who are like born in this country who uh, may be inclined to uh, to take on those sorts of tasks. Are they? Uh, I see. Well, um, in terms of of health and safety in the workplace and that kind of thing, of course, uh, everybody working in agriculture and in packing is subject to to the same kind of problems, but. Um, we have seen over the years that migrant workers are particularly, um, they have particular problems accessing their rights and services because of their status and because of the program is set up and uh, it, it sort of adds barriers um, for these people to be able to access okay. their rights and law and legislation to protect them. Okay. Uh, finally, um, Sana, could you uh, maybe tell us a little bit about you know what's being done beyond the march to uh, assist migrant workers and uh, achieving justice for their uh, from the exploitive uh, nature of a current policy? Sure. So, Justicia um, for Migrant Workers does does uh, a lot of community organizing on the ground. Uh, we do a lot of legal education and education about. Uh, legislation in the workplace, health and safety, labor laws, uh, human rights law, immigration law. So we do a lot of education. We help out um, organize when workers want to organize, such as this weekend. And we also um, are part of several coalitions that will hopefully have impact in, in legislation, on legislation. So we do a little bit of everything. And it's important to note that this event, alone won't change things, that we will continue to organize and continue to build the movement um, so that it, it gains power and people all over Canada hear about it. And, and then it's then that, that the programs and legislation will start to change. Well, Sana, I want to thank you for joining us on Alert, and uh, we'll see how uh, your movement developments as we move forward. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. That was Sana Miranda Leal, and she joined us from Ontario. Uh, she is one of the organizers of the uh, past Thanksgiving weekend Migrant Workers March. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And this week's show is about new Canadian folk songs. And like most folk songs, they're based on something, you know, there's no, there's always a materialist reason for anything, and uh, here's a song, wonderful song, if you drive up along the uh, trans, uh, Highway 16, the Yellowhead, north between Yorkton and, and Saskatoon, you're going to come to a little town called Kandahar, Saskatchewan, and you know, it's an, what it is, uh, some time ago, somebody was working on the, on the railway, uh, when they built the railway up there, and uh, they'd worked on the, on the railway in Afghanistan, and had the name Kandahar, Saskatchewan, on their brain. So here are the D-Rangers with their version of Kandahar, Saskatchewan.
She's the girl I love the most. I lured her out here to the coast. I know it's not my place to boast, but she's the best, and she is my half German girlfriend. Half German girlfriend. Half German girlfriend. And I love her so. The Nazi and the Orthodox Jew would both be disgusted if they knew about the dirty things we do. On that they would agree. She's my half German girlfriend, half German girlfriend, half German girlfriend, and I love her so. Half of German culture is sublime. And I guess we'll breathe the rest all out in time. Our mongrel children will go forth. Proving their superior worth, the miscegenated will inherit the earth, destroying purity. We have German girlfriend, have German girlfriend, have German girlfriend, and I love her so. Never, never gonna let her go. Oh no, 'cause you and I know that you and I know that I'm a lucky little so and so. Oh oh. That was Jeff Berner with "Half German Girlfriend," a real Canadian folk song, and before that. Kandahar, Saskatchewan, with the D Rangers. Here's one of the better songwriters uh, from the Yukon, a great woman named Anne-Marie Genet, whose songs are being recorded by a bunch of other people these days. People are paying attention to what's coming out of the Yukon. Here is what might later turn out to be a folk song. In Canada, the winters are long. This is about the rain and snow This is all about how it gets cold in Canada The winters are long But this year the winters seem to go on and on companion We headed south He wanted to find the sun He wanted to bust out It was the second of May And the snowdrifts were two feet high And while I drove He told me about A friend who died In Canada The winters are long But this year The winters seem to go On and on Someone tried to tell me That cold is a state of mind But when the wind blows and it's 30 below The mind gets left behind He left me in a roadside restaurant In Cutknife, Saskatchewan 
He said I drove slow and if he stayed with me He'd never catch up to the sun In Canada The winters are long But this year The winters seem to go On and on In Canada Canada This year The
Canada Dreams of California with Evelyn Perry, what a great writer. And before that, Anne-Marie Genet with In Canada, the Winters Are Long. There's always lots of folk songs about leaving places. Leaving here and leaving there. Well, here's a new one about leaving Nova Scotia. And here is Toronto's Eve Goldberg singing Leaving Nova Scotia Blues. Scotia Blues, that's it for this week, folks. Keep up the struggle. This is Music is the Weapon.
Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you'd like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines and Seven Days Around the Left were prepared by Ben Wood. Music is The Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. Special thanks to CKUW 95.9 FM for supplying us with the production facilities for this episode of Alert.